1: When faced with her husband Sean's terminal brain cancer diagnosis, Fox LA's morning meteorologist Maria Quibon Whitesell found herself in a position she could not have imagined. She had to learn to deal with illness, death, and grief, all while caring for her son and wearing a smile every day in front of millions on television. Maria joins us to talk about her journey and to offer actionable insights that can help navigate change. Maria is the author of the book, You Can't Do It Alone, A Widow's Journey Through Loss, Grief, and Life After. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Maria, let's start off by talking about your relationship with Sean. What was your life like before his diagnosis?
2: It was, I really thought we were living our happily ever after we uh, we met a little bit later. You know, I was already divorced. I was a single mom with one older child who was ready to graduate high school. And so when I met Sean, I was in such a great place mentally. Uh, my career was well, and he was in the same boat. So when we met, it was just really fantastic for for both of us because we were mature, we were ready, and we were just so. Um, so set in in our personal lives that this was just the added uh, wonderful cherry on top of our of our stories, and so we got married. We um, had a child that we thought we couldn't possibly have. I was forty one, and having a baby at that time was not the easiest thing in the world. But there he came, and we were just ecstatic as our family continued to grow. And, um, my, our son Gus was three years old and we had decided since we really had gotten married that we hadn't traveled too far from home. So we thought we were ready to go on this big adventure to Paris. We'd never been either of us. And so together it was going to be very special. And, um, Sean was young. He, he was, you know, only 50. He had just turned 50. And so we were so excited at this trip and it was there on this trip that I realized he was behaving really unlike himself. He was a very healthy person. He worked out all the time. He was usually up before I was. And so on this trip, I realized that he wanted to sleep in. He, um, was very forgetful, but, but, uh, disturbingly so. And, He was someone who used to live in New York for many years, and he couldn't get the concept of catching a cab or hailing a cab, so I knew something was wrong. And when we got back home, I asked him to see a doctor. I made him promise, actually, while we were on this trip. And two weeks after we landed from that trip in Paris, uh, he was diagnosed with terminal, incurable Um, even inoperable brain tumors, which ended up being glioblastoma, uh, just a devastating brain cancer disease.
1: When I had heard the story for the first time, it it brought me back one of my best friends 10 years ago was cleaning her house and she collapsed. And she was Mm -hmm. also diagnosed with glioblastoma. When you look back at it now, you, you were talking about when you first noticed it. But when you look back, are you able to see subtle things that may have been occurring? Or was it something pretty sudden, like what happened with my friend?
2: You know, in hindsight, you know, hindsight 2020, there were a couple of instances, and I talk about it in the book, how I did look back and go, huh, that did give me pause, I would say within a year and a half to two years before he was diagnosed, that there were some instances where he he did act strangely or at least not himself and that could have pointed to the beginning or at least when those tumors could have possibly been starting to grow. Doctors didn't know exactly how long they'd been there or how long they were affecting him but there were definitely some signs now as I look back that would have maybe alerted us but we justified them. You know, he, mm-hmm. we thought they were, due to him uh, getting a new job or uh, just the stress of, of having a new baby or uh, turning 50, like some anxiety related to that. So they were kind of explainable until they weren't anymore on that trip to Paris. Right. right.
1: And, and what was the treatment like for Sean and for the whole family?
2: Well, um, we were first told about the fact that brain cancer has no cure And so we were prepared to a degree, I guess, at the possibility that he would be, um, gone. He would be not with us within as little as a few months if we did nothing, meaning we didn't have any treatments, um, you know, available to him or maybe a year if we were lucky, a little bit over a year. Um, so we were kind of faced with that in the beginning and it was terrifying we were very fortunate to have a very close relationship with our family. We have a large extended family. And so we all sort of mobilized after the initial shock kind of came on and we researched every doctor, every hospital, research hospital and treatment that we could find. And we all kind of came to the same place, which was there really wasn't that much available. And that's really one of the reasons why we thought that our story would make or at least could possibly make a difference in bringing a a light and shine a light on the lack of funding for research for this disease. There hasn't even been any real advancement in, in the treatment of this disease over the last few decades. When my friend had it 10 years ago she was in a
1: clinical trial and she lasted for about four and a half years but it was a very Challenging four and a half years. It it really wasn't any quality of life that she had at that point, and um, you know I, I also yeah. have experienced. My father, brother, and sister have, have all died of cancer, so it's it's a very challenging oh. journey for the person and for the entire family. It, it's not just the patient that it touches; it it touches everyone's lives.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there there are some stark differences between the different kinds of cancers that are out there, but I think the most significant thing about brain cancer or any brain disease like Alzheimer's or any um, brain, uh, even uh, what you call dementia, Mm -hmm. especially brain cancer, it really takes away the essence of who you are and can really bring on some incredibly devastating deficits. so it's a little bit different from the different types of cancers um, that are out there, and it just it's hard to do research on someone's brain, right? So often, when you're diagnosed with brain cancer, it's often too late. And you mentioned your friend who whose quality of life was was quite um, wasn't really there uh, for those number of years, and and so I'm hoping and praying that we will get somewhere um in my lifetime hopefully Mm -hmm. to find uh, some kind of cure
1: so maria when when you were going through all of this in your home and and you're watching the person that you love trying to manage this you were still working and and it wasn't like you had an office job where you could close the door and hide away it was a very public visible job where you had to put on a happy face every day where did you find the strength to be able to do that
2: Yeah, um, you know, while I was there doing it, I guess, and and even today, because I definitely have my days and moments, um, I just, I I looked at it as, you know, it was a job that I needed. Um, I needed to have that livelihood and that income. For many people, you can't just be at home with your loved one caregiving, and so um, I can understand those challenges. For me, I did the weather every day. And if you watch the news, that's typically the part of the newscast that can bring uh, a lighthearted look at the day. Uh, I used to joke that it was the part of the newscast that actually looked forward in time versus talk about the past. And so for me, it was an escape, if you will, for a short amount of time in the day to be away from the stress of, of, of the home. Um, I didn't like being away from a husband, but I know that I needed to go to work. And so I kind of put a different hat on, if you will, and I just compartmentalized that part of me and I kind of left it in my car. And I remember I would walk out of the elevator with um, just a sort of a different attitude and knew what I needed to do um, while I was there
3: at work.
1: The the work that I'm doing now, I started this when I was 43 years old, and it was the result of my 23-year marriage ending and my mother and sister dying all within six months. And I found that rather than allow myself, and, and I use the word allow because I have come to learn that I think it is a choice, um, allow myself mm-hmm. to, to stay in that dark hole of despair and, and grief and feeling sorry for myself that I did use the work or, you know, getting out into the world as a a healing mechanism. Do you think that, Mm -hmm. you know, being able to compartmentalize and and get away from what was going on in the home, do you think that that had a healing impact
2: for you as well? Oh, 100%. Um, You know, often my smile could have been forced on many occasions uh, during those 18 months and beyond but inevitably, after you force that first smile, you get caught up in the day. You get caught up in the, the flow and the people around you. And I'm very fortunate to work with some amazing people who really are my work friends, but friends in real life as well. And so many of them would take the time to uh, make me laugh. I think laughter is really important, even if it's the most mundane joke that they could find uh, out of their arsenal that that morning or that day. And, you know, it starts from there. It starts with a forced smile, which becomes a real smile, which becomes a feeling that comes over you. And if for those few moments you forget, it does bring on um, a different feeling in your mind and in your heart and your body. And so for me, it was almost a saving grace to be at work every day because it did help me get through each day and gave me the strength to go back home and that fuel, if you will, Mm -hmm. to go back home and, and, and get a different job done, you know? Yeah. So, so in addition
1: to working and, and, you know, trying to keep yourself out there in the world in a productive way, what else are you doing to help put the pieces of your life back together? What advice can you offer to someone who might be going through grief like you are?
2: Well, um, there's a number of things that I know that, helped me. And the first thing was the support group that I found at the UCLA Brain Cancer uh, Center. The uh, support group was um, something that I was hesitant to go to. I just, I felt like I didn't want to be around other people with with spouses who were dying. And I just didn't want to be a part of that club. My only regret now was was not going soon enough. I really can't tell you how much it helped to me to be amongst people who could understand what I was going through and I didn't realize that until I got there. And even when I got there there were some days where I thought, "Oh, I maybe I just wasted some time that I could have spent at home." But honestly, it was so good for me and my my heart and my soul. And I encourage everybody out there to seek support whether it's um, grief support or support of your community and your church, but I'm a big advocate for family counseling and um, therapy. I could not have been able to speak to my husband and communicate accurately without the help of our therapist Mm -hmm. and not to mention talk about it with our young son. So without them and that support system, I just know it would have been an even more difficult road. So I encourage you to seek out and get help um, in that way. And I know today it's more difficult because of the pandemic, but we can do it uh, via technology. There's so many resources for us that are that are there.
1: And what have you learned, Maria, that can be something an outside person can do to be helpful that, you know, to help the person who's in pain? What could we be doing?
2: Well, for me, um, there were many people who reached out to me and, um, you know, first of all, asked me how I was doing and and. didn't wait for me necessarily to, to say what I needed, because oftentimes I didn't know what I needed until it was in front of me. And so depending on your relationship with the person, I know that my family, my friends would just show up with, um, you know, with, with food or with groceries or, um, just anticipate some things like, I remember a story It was right before Christmas and a friend of ours uh, and her husband came over and just set up a Christmas tree for us. And it was just something that was last on my list. Like I didn't even think about doing something like that, but they, but they did that and it didn't take very long. And I just thought these little things like that, or um, um, at my son's school, they organized a, a uh, dinner train, if you will. And, three nights a week there would just be a box of a a casserole and some dessert and some bread that was there and um, you know it was just something that I didn't have to worry about especially with a young son having to make dinner uh, three nights a week was was so helpful for me. It's,
1: It's those little things that are just very human and I ask because you know I think in today's world we're so used to Somebody makes a post, and you hear someone lost a family member, and and people just write, you know, so sorry, sending prayers, and then that's the end of it. But that human connection Mm -hmm. can make all the difference to the family
2: that's in pain. Absolutely. Um, There was even one instance during the treatments where I knew I had to read a bunch of books because I wanted to find out what the latest trials or treatments were for this type of disease, and. Uh, my sisters-in-law, uh, some friends stepped up and said, what books are you going to read? Please tell me, and I'm going to read them for you. And and there was a handful of books, and I remember each one of them read a book quickly and gave me a synopsis, like a one page, instead of me taking the time to do that. They took the time to do it and just gave me the, the bullet points. And I can't tell you how helpful that was at the time for me and um, I mean those, those kinds of things were, were so helpful to me at the time.
1: The book is You Can't Do It Alone A Widow's Journey Through Lost Grief and Life After. Maria a few times during the interview you mentioned the hope for increased brain cancer research and a treatment. Is there anything that our listeners can do to help?
2: Um, in regards to finding a cure if you would like to Donate, and I know it's tough at these times, but, you know, there are other cancers, there are other charities that you might want to consider. I hope that you would consider brain cancer research as one of them. Um, this disease will, does not discriminate, and it will get you if you are young, if you're old, it will affect, um, you, whether you are black, white, Asian, and it just doesn't discriminate. So I hope that you will spread awareness, um, talk about GBM, talk about brain cancer, and maybe it can inspire a young doctor to devote their lives into research for finding a cure because I really wouldn't w- want to wish this disease on anyone, not even my enemies. It is very difficult to get through something like this. and. When I say you can't do it alone, I couldn't have done it alone. Um, I'm so grateful and thankful for my village, uh, my family, my friends, my church for helping me and continue to help us get through life now after my husband's passing.
1: Maria, thank you so much for spending time with us. I am so sorry for your loss. but. I'm thankful that you've shared your story because I know that you're going to be helping so many people.
2: Thank you for for helping to shine the light on brain cancer, Joan, and for uh, the light that you bring to the world. Thank you so much.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347 903 Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
1: Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYA, and be sure to tell your friends. We all want to live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on-call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a certified transition coach, reinvention expert and speaker. Linda empowers people who are stuck, overwhelmed, or ready for change to release to struggle, gain clarity, and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions. She is here today to discuss how we can find comfort in uncertain times. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me back, Joan. It's always great to be here.
1: So, Linda, in recent times, we have all been trying to navigate uncharted waters, and most of us do well when life is predictable and we have routines that work well. But How do we thrive in uncertain times like we're experiencing now when everything we've come to know and count on is different or challenging?
4: Yeah, life is much easier when we're feeling comfortable, in control, and we have established plans to follow. But when the opposite is true, it can definitely throw us for a loop. We kind of pull back. We let fear rise up and take control of our emotions, our plans, and even our goals. So here's a strategy to help us in uncertain times. The first thing to do is to pause and allow yourself to think about things unemotionally and recognize how often you deal with lots of examples of uncertainty in normal, everyday life. Think about it. Even under normal circumstances, relationships, situations, and expectations are constantly morphing. Every day, we face unexpected detours, setbacks, hurdles, and tough decisions that we didn't expect They're unsettling. So really, we actually do have a great deal of practice dealing with uncertainty, and we generally handle it pretty well. But when uncertainty becomes a major player in our daily lives, it feels overwhelming and sometimes scary. Uncertainty is naturally challenging, but with awareness and tenacity, the fear that accompanies it can be conquered. So our first step is to be aware of all the practice we've already had by recognizing how often we've successfully navigated uncertainty under normal circumstances. This gives us some comfort and confidence knowing we can use that experience to get us through even bigger uncertainties and challenges going forward. So Linda, when
1: we're anxious, it's normal to want to feel a sense of control in at least some areas of our life, but How do we do it when just about everything feels so out of
4: control? Yeah, wanting control is definitely a natural response to anxiety. When we're stressed or fearful, we cling to anything that gives us the perception of control. And notice I said perception. We may be just kidding ourselves, but the illusion of control is powerful and it provides comfort anyway. Here's the key, learning to ease the need for control. When we realize that control is really an illusion, it opens us up to new possibilities and opportunities. Hanging on to old ideas, practices, and habits because they're familiar or comfortable feeds that control monster. But opening yourself up to the possibility that things could be done another way allows you the freedom to explore possibilities and new pathways to the end zone. You know, when I grew up, I constantly heard, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Ugh, I cringed every time I heard that horrible cliche, But the takeaway message is that just because we've fallen into a pattern that works for us now, it probably isn't going to work forever, and it definitely isn't the only way of doing something. Easing the need for control in times of uncertainty is critical. It's good practice for everyday life when things are stable and predictable, but it's an absolute necessity to get us through tough spots.
1: So it's important to stay grounded and focused. How do you advise we do this? Well, we don't
4: wanna stay stuck while life passes us by as we wait out a storm. We wanna be able to be flexible and move forward. I found that step one is to come to a place of acceptance. We must accept the present circumstances, whether we like them or not. Accepting what is, what you can't change, allows us to release the struggle and really reduces the level of suffering we'll experience. Try accepting without judging the situation As good or bad it just is and that's not always easy so a helpful strategy is to look for one positive thing every day in difficult times find one thing no matter how small or insignificant it may feel at the time if it's positive it counts when we intentionally and consciously find things to be grateful for it changes our perspective Gratitude is a powerful way of creating more peace and calm, and you'll see more things to be grateful for begin to appear in your life. I encourage people to practice gratitude all the time, but it is crucial in times of uncertainty or transition. Number two is to remember your past successes. We've all been through tough times before and survived. We will manage again. Apply your past successes to your current reality. Draw on your strengths. To create new solutions recall how you've grown through past struggles and give yourself some credit and number three is to lean on loved ones when we're struggling it's important to find a friend relative or professional you can trust and be real with you don't have to go it alone lean on strong relationships in weak moments from every challenge comes something positive if we allow it These are some proven ways to find comfort in uncertain times.
1: This is great advice, Linda, and it is needed now more than ever. If you would like to get more information about Linda and her work, or if you'd like to work with Linda, you can visit livinginspiredcoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, CYACYL.com/Linda. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel like there's no end to the problems that you face? Do your challenges seem too great to overcome? Do you ask yourself, what's the point? If you answered yes to any of these questions, welcome to the majority. Most people at one time or another feel the same way. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We tend to look at others and think that they have it made. They have it all figured out. What we don't realize is that those who appear to have figured it all out have the same feelings, However, they've made a conscious decision to turn their adversity into a positive experience. A wise person once said, Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We all face adversity. It's what you do with it that matters. I had the opportunity to interview baseball great Jim Abbott. Jim pitched a no-hitter with the New York Yankees, won the gold medal game at the 1988 Olympics, entered the starting rotation of the California Angels without spending one day in their minor league, and finished third in voting for the Cy Young Award. Jim was born with one hand. Jim spent much of his life with his missing hand tucked in his front pocket. Like the rest of us, he felt insecure and self-conscious. But he chose a career with a uniform that didn't have a front pocket. Even when he was standing on the pitcher's mound making history, his insecurities crept in his thoughts. But he never let those insecurities stop him. And now he serves as an inspiration to many children especially proving that anything in life is possible his challenge has become a gift will you let your challenge become a gift will you look for the lessons in your adversity if you've lost a job try to figure out what happened is there anything you could have done differently is it time for a career change if you're facing an illness look for the reasons why it may have happened can you change your lifestyle or your diet can you be an inspiration to someone else If you have relationship problems, what can you change about the way you interact with others? Is the person an emotional drain in your life? If you're in debt, can you improve on your budgeting skills or become more financially prudent? Adversity is guidance. Sometimes it comes into your life to tell you it's time to change, sometimes to teach you a lesson. Always remember that anything can be overcome with the right attitude. Look to others for strength and inspiration. Rather than getting bogged down with your own problems, pay attention to people who happily survive and even prosper despite all of the odds. As Jim Abbott said, when something is taken away once, it is given back twice. Look for what is given back to you. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com.
4: Social distancing slows the spread of coronavirus, so stay a minimum of six feet away from
2: others and stay home if you can. More info at coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
0: This is WNYA, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: conversations with joan i'm joan herman thanks for staying with us many people believe that if they don't have a management title they can't influence outcomes or other people They think it's not their responsibility to make anything better. Today's guest, Angie Morgan, believes that leaders can be found at any level of an organization and that anyone can affect change if he or she commits to it. Angie is a military veteran turned leadership expert who teaches that leadership is not about authority or titles. It's about influencing people and outcomes. She's the founder of Lead Star and served as a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, thank you so much for having me. I love the concept of your program. Well, thank you for that. And, and I'm so happy that you're here because with your training, you served as a captain in the U.S. Marine Corps. And with that training, I think you bring so much to this topic. So let's begin. Tell us a little bit about your military service.
3: Well, I uh, decided during college when I was a freshman at the University of Michigan to enroll in ROTC. And I knew that I was getting myself into an intense physical experience, but I didn't recognize or appreciate at that time in my life how much I was going to change. And it wasn't just physically to meet the rigors of Marine Corps training, but it was just to your point of your program. It really changed my attitude and perspective about my own capabilities as a leader Mm-hmm. Also, going into the Marine Corps, I, I would have thought leadership was about a job title or that person in charge is the leader. But the Marine Corps, my military experience, helped nurture these thoughts that leadership is really more about behavior. And there are behaviors that anyone can demonstrate to be more influential in their life. I mean, I think about leadership, it's about doing two things well, influencing outcomes and inspiring others. And those are skills that I still now rely upon each day of my life, not just at my job, but as a parent or in the community. And so it's kind of funny that this military experience enhanced every single role in my life in many important ways.
1: You know, Angie, I think that there are many people who currently hold a leadership position that are really not leaders. They lack credibility in that position. So how does someone go about becoming credible, actually growing into the role?
3: It's great that you say that because I think you're pointing out, Joan, that there's a disconnect in our society between what true leadership is. Many people do think it's about positional authority, but if you've ever worked for a bad boss, you recognize, no, Mm -hmm. no, no. Manager and leader are two different things. And it's best summed up as you manage things, you lead people. And credibility is one of those most important skills that any leader needs to develop to gain influence over others because credibility forms that foundation of trust. And for those seeking to build their credibility, um, in our book, Spark, we write about four keys to building credibility. But if I could call out one that I think is most important, it's by making sure Um, you know, what you say, you actually do. We have this concept called the say-do gap, Mm -hmm. you know, what's the space between your actions and words. And if it's very, very small, you know, in reality, it's never going to be airtight. (laughs) But if it's really, really small, you're likely credible with other people. So for leaders, you have to guard your credibility with your life and just be very consistent with doing the things that you commit to actually doing.
1: Going along with what you just said, that disconnect, do you think that sometimes that comes from the, the, the fact that people don't really know what they stand for? And then you have that disconnect between a value and an action. So how important is it to have a clear understanding of who you are and what you believe? I mean, I think that's probably why the Marines are you know it's so successful in your training, because you're there with a belief that's congruent with the action that you're taking.
3: Great point. And we also write a lot about character. In fact, that's one of the very first leadership behaviors we introduce in Spark is talking about that character. You now, your character is the manifestation of your values. So how well do you know your values and how much are they expressed in your life? There's a concept called the Galate effect. And really, it's, it's more about self-fulfilling prophecies. If you know what your values are and they're top of mind, you're more likely to live them. But if you don't know your values, um, you can find yourself acting inconsistent with how you actually want to show up um, in all your relationships. And other people, you know, we may have a hard time, you know, paying attention or noticing when, when those disconnects, ha- disconnects happen. But other people are watching and you can lose your influence quite quickly when they start to pinpoint, Ah, you know what? You're not who you really say you are. It's like that manager who says, you know, I value family, work-life balance, yet they, you know, email you all throughout the weekend, Mm -hmm. interrupting your personal time. And so it really goes back to character. Are you who you say you are?
1: And, you know, once a person gets into that leadership position. And I'm sure you see this all the time, that person now believes that nothing is ever his or her fault, they always have someone below them to hide behind it. And I, I, you know, when I see that, I lose so much respect for a person because I think a good leader needs to be accountable.
3: And I agree incredibly. So one of the most Well, one of the great things about the Marine Corps is they always have sayings to help you govern your behavior. One of the most important things I learned as a young Marine officer, which I now carry with me in every role I fill, is that you're responsible for all your team does and all your team fails to do. Simple expression, but it's really important. I mean, no excuses, total accountability. So if, you know, your team member doesn't get you know, a project complete or misses a deadline, as a leader, you know, it's so easy to point the finger, to pass blame, but you have to stop yourself and really overcome some of those, you know, those responses that are just natural with human nature, you know, placing blame. You just kind of have to stop yourself and think, whoa, if you weren't successful, how did I contribute to that failure?
1: And and Angie, sometimes people are thrust into a leadership role or they may be wanting to obtain a leadership role, but they allow this self-doubt and fear to get in the way. So what are some strategies you offer to help someone build his or her confidence?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think confidence, if you really think about it, um, it it connects to nearly every single success or outcome that we experience. You know, Our confidence level uh, connects to the goals we pursue, um, is associated with the risks we tolerate or are willing to take. In Spark, we talk about four ways to build confidence. The one I think has had most impact over me is this concept of self-talk. Sounds kind of silly, right? Talking to yourself. But if you pay attention in those moments when your confidence is needed, if you pay attention to that inner dialogue running through your mind, is it thinking you can or is it thinking you can't? Because surprisingly, and research shows, that whether you think you can or can't, as Henry Ford said, you're right. And so what are your own beliefs about your abilities? When you're faced with pressure, stress, and need your confidence, are you doubting or are you promoting yourself? And, again, that's going to connect to the outcome that you experience.
4: Angie, how do
1: companies benefit by investing in their leaders?
3: Most of the businesses that we work with um, have been very successful, Um, you know, streamlining their processes, gaining greater efficiencies, you know, really focusing on their strategies and, you know, really getting the management aspects of a business down. But what often is overlooked is tapping into the potential of every single individual on their team. Every employee carries around with them what I like to think of as discretionary effort, the effort that they could give if they were truly motivated and inspired. And that discretionary effort for small businesses can result tens to tens of thousands, even millions of dollars in revenue for that business. And for larger organizations, we're probably talking billions. So we work with mostly, you know, businesses at any stage of growth, you know, small, medium or large, but we help them design programs that allow them to tap into the human capital potential within the organization.
1: Andy, are there any other strategies that you want to offer our listeners?
3: Absolutely. I think, you know, if, wherever you are on your leadership development journey, the most important thing you need to recognize is that leadership is a choice. So you choose to lead. It's not a birthright. It's actually behavior that you can opt into once you develop those behaviors. And no one can make you a leader. You have to make yourself a leader. And through the process, you we know, conclude Spark with talking about the critical um, behavior of consistency. As long as you continuously focus on your own development, continuously improve, be consistent with your efforts, you'll grow and develop your abilities to lead. And with that comes opportunities for you to inspire greater success, not just in your life, but in the lives of others.
1: The book is Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Greater Success. If you would like to get more information about Angie, her work, or Spark, you can visit her website, leadstar.us. Angie, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What do you want to leave our listeners with?
3: Well, I think one of the most important things about our work is that wherever you are in life, you still have so much growth and development. So wherever you see yourself five years from now, I really hope that you can Move yourself up a few more notches. We undersell our opportunities for growth and development, sometimes to our disadvantage. We all have the power to do amazing things. It starts to your um, your program's name. It starts with attitude, and it's followed with will and commitment. And so my um, to your listeners with your program, just really – you know, raise raise your expectations for yourself and surprise yourself with the amazing things that you can do.
1: Angie, thank you so much for being here with us. And for the reminder that anyone can be a leader in any role, whether at work or in life. So it was really a pleasure having you here. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Joan. We'll be right back.
5: Is your blood pressure on the rise? Hi, I'm Dr. Kyle Pacino, a chiropractor and founder of Health on Maine, located in Little Falls, New Jersey. Here are five tips that may help you lower those numbers. The American Heart Association recommends dietary changes and weight loss as a method of lowering your blood pressure. So speak with your physician who can help guide you through this process. Research has proven that caffeine in excess can cause elevations in your blood pressure. So be sure to keep your caffeine intake limited to one to two cups per day. Reduce your stress level. Being able to identify your stressors and actively work on reducing or eliminating your stress is a great method of lowering your blood pressure. Add exercise to your regimen. Light cardiovascular activities such as power walking, jogging, and swimming are a few examples of heart-healthy exercises. Consistency above all is the best form of treatment. Alter your personal schedule to include proper eating habits, exercise, rest, and relaxation. Because changes don't typically happen overnight, make a plan and get yourself an accountability partner to help you through your journey. I'm Dr. Kyle Pacino. If you or someone that you care about is having problems maintaining a healthy blood pressure, please give our office a call. I can be reached at healthonmain.info or call me 973-832-6722. Let's find a solution to this issue together.
6: Lower your expectations to lower your stress level. Hi, this is Angela Vlakanchik and I'm a Stress Management Specialist from Bridge Management Consulting, offering teachable stress management skills. One definition of stress calls it the difference between what you want or expect to happen and what is actually happening right now. You may have thoughts about what you would like to happen in a certain situation, how you would like your friends and family to act. Maybe you even voice that opinion to your child saying, please don't go out with Chris anymore. You know that person isn't good for you. But when you continue to think about how this event isn't working out the way you think it should, you are creating your very own stress event. It's how you think about a situation that produces the stress response. It's because you want it to be a certain way and it's not. The solution? Lower your expectations, or better yet, be mindful and don't have any expectations. Have an open mind and don't judge situations negatively if it doesn't result in your desired outcome. You can have preferences, but don't be tied to them occurring in order to be happy and calm. Expect nothing, accept everything. Or as the Buddha said, peace is the death of expectations. For more information on stress relief coaching or webinars, please visit BridgeManagementConsulting.com.
0: Did you know that stress can negatively impact your immune system? Hi, I'm Allison Ayotte, owner of Awaken Sound Health. During times of high stress, your chances of contracting a cold or flu virus increases by 20 to 60%. According to Dr. Rosen, Chief Wellness Officer at the Cleveland Clinic, stress is the leading associated factor with cancer. When it comes to your health, reducing your stress is as important as eating nutrient-rich foods, exercising, and getting a good night's sleep. Meditation has been scientifically studied and shown to induce relaxation and significantly reduce the effects of stress. At Awaken Sound Health, we specialize in relaxing and restorative sound meditation, a form of meditation that requires you to do nothing but listen to therapeutic sounds woven into soothing music. Reduce your stress load to optimize your health through a daily meditation practice. And in a short amount of time, it will become a habit like eating to nourish your body and sleeping to restore your energy. For free sound meditations, go to the Awaken Sound Health YouTube channel. And to learn more about sound therapy or to book an appointment, go to awakensoundhealth.com. Sound therapy is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention.
1: your health. Joining me today to talk about how hypnosis can be an effective way to quit smoking is Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis and sound practitioner and the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary offers online hypnosis to people around the world. She's the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for having me. So, Mary, smoking causes damage to the body, which can lead to long-term health problems. But it's a hard habit to break because tobacco contains the addictive chemical nicotine. As with heroin or other addictive drugs, the body and mind quickly get used to the nicotine in cigarettes. Why do you believe this is an especially
7: important time for people to quit smoking? That's a great question, Joan. And this is an important time to quit smoking because we have COVID-19. And... COVID-19 can nearly double the rate of the uh, COVID-19 progressing in people who smoke. So that's really why it's always an important time for your health with smoking because it creates uh, cancers, heart disease, strokes, diabetes. But now having the facts, from the UC of San Francisco that shows any smoker that they did the research of about 12,000 people, the uh, progression of disease and the progression to go into a critical mode of the disease for smokers was nearly double.
1: And that's really important information, Mary, because we're all looking for ways to avoid COVID. And this is something that's within our control. So let's talk a little bit about when someone Wants to quit. That person makes the decision. What are some of the challenges that a person will experience when quitting?
7: Right, and one of the things you mentioned is that it's an addiction. That's that's why smoking sometimes is challenging. It's a habit and an addiction with the nicotine. So sometimes when people quit, they and everyone's different because the nicotine seems to affect different people. Some people I work with have really not a lot of side effects, just like a craving. But other people go through like a detox in their body, the sweats and all of that. So everyone does that differently. But so they just have to realize that um, they need that commitment. And but to be aware that there will be some cravings or strong urges for it. And that's where hypnosis comes in to help you deal with that, to give you the tools to fight it and become the non-smoker. So how does that happen, Mary? How does hypnosis help? So um, typically when I work with someone, we first create a script about becoming a non-smoker because it's very individual for everyone. So, yes, we can have a generic for people to use, but if you really want to get to your trigger points, I actually get to understand your habits. When are you smoking the most in different locations? And then we create the script on that. So we create like a scenario, you becoming a non-smoker. We add positive affirmations, um, and it gives the motivation to quit smoking. So at the end of that session, I read that to you. In hypnosis, so we plant the seeds of you becoming a non-smoker, and then you listen to that recording um, of the script that I create for you. So every day you're getting that reinforcement and the and the support because that's what it is. People need support when they're quitting smoking, and then each session built upon the next. We try to understand what the cigarette is giving you. What's what's your reasons that are the real triggers? So stress is one of the biggest triggers, and that's one of the things that it can help with. So I teach people uh, self-hypnosis to help you stay strong if you feel that need to smoke and that you can push that craving away. How effective is hypnosis in getting this done? Hypnosis is very effective. I can't say it's 100% because it's gonna depend on your motivation, your commitment, but I'd say for the most part what I see in my practice is at least 90% effective. But I always check in with people I kind of assess people where they are on their journey of quitting smoking and look for a certain level of motivation. So I look for like a six or more motivation to quit smoking um, so that they are doing it at the right time to succeed.
1: So it basically helps get to the root cause of why someone smokes.
7: Right. And that's my my, uh, program with hypnotherapy. It's we're really trying to understand what that connection is to the cigarette. What's the cigarette doing? And, you know, if you're a non-smoker, you may not understand that that cigarette is is like an old friend so it's actually sometimes some sadness comes in the sessions because you're losing an old friend that's been there for all the good times and all the bad times it's always been there so there's an emotional component as well which i find in a lot of sessions because you know not even a person has been there for people like a cigarette has been there so it's releasing that and releasing that connection and filling yourself up with more of the positive and and your own support and that you can handle anything on your own. Mary, can you offer a few tips to help someone quit? Sure. Um, my first thing I tell people when they're going to take a cigarette, pause. Try to check in with yourself to see why you're wanting that cigarette. Is, are you stressed? Are you bored? Um, and if you can push away that and distract yourself, that's what I would tell people to distract yourself And see if that goes away. And a lot of times if you distract yourself, you'll move on. Also, smoke with your other hand. Make it uncomfortable. Put the cigarettes in a place that's not so easily accessible. So you have to become a chore to get the cigarettes. Like let's say you're driving. Normally that would be your smoking place. Put them in the trunk so that they're not easily accessible. So those are some good tips to start weaning yourself and quitting smoking.
1: Mary, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more information about Mary and her work, you can visit her website, MetrohypnosisCenter.com. Once again, Mary, thank you. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude, change your life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now.